Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we ask that courtesy check to see that mobile devices have been silenced or turned off as we prepare to begin. Our Internet viewers are reminded you're always welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And, of course, we will post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Leading our program and welcoming our guest is Walter Lohman, director of our Asian Studies Center. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Prior to joining us here, he served as senior vice president and executive director of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council, and it also served as the council's senior country director representing American interests in Indonesia and Singapore. He's also had Capitol Hill experience working on Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff, as well as a policy aide to Senator John McCain. Please join me in welcoming Walter Lohman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you all for coming out. Um, It's such a pleasure to welcome Tony Abbott back to Heritage Foundation stage. Uh, He was here last in 2012, uh, at that time as leader of the opposition He's since served a very successful tour as Prime Minister of Australia in 2013 to 2015, and has otherwise managed to stay in the thick of things in Australian politics. Um, I remember uh, Mr. Abbott's speech back here in 2012 very well. I particularly remember how um, how well he understood the mission of the Heritage Foundation and the American conservative movement. I really appreciated that because I find there's a great deal of misunderstanding um, in the American media, in the American populace, some among our friends, some most of it among our enemies. Um, but here was was Tony with a very sound understanding of our own political system, um, sounding as if he had just read Russell Kirk, in fact, um, testifying to the, the, the soundness of our values and, and how they create uh, links between our two countries. Um, I was also moved at the time by his faith in American leadership, Our alliance is blessed with support across the political spectrum in Australia, I would say, uh, but I've never heard it expressed as well as it was on that day in in Tony's speech. Uh, So for those reasons, uh, given all that has transpired over the last six years, I'm very eager to hear what uh, Mr. Abbott has to tell us today. So I'm going to turn it over to him with no further ado, and and we'll have some Q&A afterwards. Thank you. Thanks so much. Walter, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for being here, everyone. I very much appreciate your presence. And yes, uh, I was here six years ago in the middle of 2012. And I suppose the 
thrust of the speech I gave back then uh, was a plea for America to have as much faith in itself as others had in America. Well, times have changed. Uh, Six years of dirty water under the bridge, uh, a new president, a more challenging strategic environment. So uh, this is the new take on how things are. Even 18 months into his presidency, the world is still having trouble coming to grips with Donald Trump, the most unconventional president ever. Still, he's not a bad dream from which America will still wake up or a fool to be ridiculed. For someone, the legion of critics say is a compulsive liar. He's been remarkably true to his word. Especially compared with his predecessor, Trump doesn't moralise. It's classic Trump to be openly exasperated by the G7's hand-wringing hypocrisy. Unlike almost every other democratic leader, he doesn't try to placate critics. He knows that it's more important to get things done than to be universally loved, because all his life he's impressed people by doing deals rather than by setting out to win them over. Beyond his sprawling past and the -the over-the-top tweets, the holder of the world's most significant office should always be taken seriously. Erratic and ill-disciplined, though he often seems, there's little doubt that Trump is well on his way to being a consequential president. On all the evidence so far, when he says something, he means it, and when he consistently says it, something will happen. He said he'd cut taxes. He has and the American economy is at its strongest in at least a decade. He said he'd cut regulations, and innumerable Obama-era green rules have gone. He said he'd pull out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, and he has, to the usual obloquy, but no discernible environmental damage. He said he'd scrap the Iranian deal, and that's happened. So if Iran does get nuclear weapons, at least it won't be with American connivance. He said he'd move the US Embassy to Jerusalem, and that's been done without catastrophe. He said he'd boost defence spending. That's happening too, and adversaries no longer think they can cross American red lines with impunity. He said he'd build a wall with Mexico. It's bogged down in the Congress, but once it's there... It will be the US version of Australia sending back the boats and will end up demonstrating that it's far from humane to let people take advantage of you. Already, he's accomplished 64% of the mandate for leadership agenda that the Heritage Foundation set for him. Not bad at all, compared with just 49% for Ronald Reagan at a similar stage in his presidency. It is a pity that he's kept his promise to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, but his concerns shouldn't be dismissed because in the short term, freer trade can be better for rich people in poor countries than for poor people in rich ones. Trump thinks that the impact of freer trade has been to make America's enemies stronger. 
But as the Harley-Davidson experience shows, global supply chains mean that even all American products these days are made in the world, and the consequence of losing imports can be losing exports too as other countries retaliate. So far, though, strong rhetoric backed by tough action hasn't triggered the full-scale trade war, but it has forced other countries to address America's concerns about technology theft and predatory pricing. Then there's the nuclear deal with North Korea. Maybe a hitherto brutal dictator who's so far murdered his half-brother and uncle and all his extended family and had his defence minister blown to pieces by artillery fire. Maybe this dictator could actually be looking for a way out and for the survival strategy that Trump has provided. On the other hand, it could also be a latter-day version of the Iran deal, where pressure is relaxed on a dreadful regime on the basis of promises that are never fully kept, leaving the South Koreans unsure of American support. That's the trouble with one-on-one meetings. They might be good for building trust, but they're bad for making decisions because each participant has his own version of what was meant. Still, whatever our judgment on the Trump presidency so far, he has got two and a half more years in the world's biggest job and has every chance of being re-elected. He is the reality we have to work with. For Australia, Trump has so far been a good president. Despite a testy initial conversation with Prime Minister Turnbull, he's honoured the very bad deal that his predecessor had done to take boat people from Nauru and Manus Island and to settle them in the United States. He seems to appreciate that Australia is the only ally who's been side by side with America in every conflict since the Great War and has exempted our steel and aluminium from the tariffs slapped on many others. As a country that's paid its dues on the American alliance, we have been treated with courtesy and respect. But that's no grounds for complacency in dealing with a transactional president. As more weighty US allies are likely to find at the the NATO summit, Trump is mightily reluctant to help those who don't pull their weight. And that will apply even to family like Britain, Canada and Australia. And who can blame him? Along with Britain and France, in a much more circumscribed way, America has been the world's policeman, the guarantor of a modicum of restraint from the world's despots and fanatics. No other country has had both the strength and the goodwill for this essential task. And it's thanks for seven decades of watchfulness and prodigious expenditure of blood and treasure has been arch condescension from the intellectuals whose freedom America has protected and commercial exploitation from the competitors that the American-led global order has created. It's little wonder that Trump wants trade that's fair as well as free. And it's little wonder that he's tired of so-called allies who give sermons from the sidelines while America keeps them safe. 
The truth is that the rest of the world needs America much more than America needs us. America has no threatening neighbours. It's about as remote from the world's trouble spots as it's possible to be. It's richly endowed with resources, including, again, energy. Its agricultural capacity is almost boundless. Its technology is second to none. Its manufacturing base is vast. Its people are entrepreneurial in their bones. From diversity, it has indeed built unity and an enviable pride in country. In many respects, it's the world in one country, only a better world than most of that outside. And America living in splendid isolation from troubles across the sea might lose little and perhaps gain much, at least in the beginning. A fortress America would be as impregnable as any country could be. In the relatively peaceful world that America has policed and in the trading environment that America has shaped, thanks also to the limited economic freedom that the communists have allowed, the Chinese have dragged close to half a billion people from the third world to the middle class in scarcely a generation. It's the biggest and quickest advance in human well-being in all history, facilitated by American benevolence, so that the Chinese economy now rivals America's, and their power soon will. Compared with their communist cousins in the old Soviet Union, the Chinese seem less ideological and more nationalistic, more interested in trade and investment ties than military ones, whose global ambitions are more economic than strategic, at least for now. An America-first mindset might conclude that China should be left alone, even to oppress others, provided it doesn't bother the US. Still, for Trump, America first doesn't mean only America, yet, or your own, you're on your own world. America hasn't lost its pride, its values, or even its sense of manifest destiny. It's just that it's weary of paying any price, bearing any burden, or supporting any friend to assure the survival and success of liberty, in JFK's stirring words, on behalf of countries that aren't equally committed. Trump is clearly impatient with the liberal internationalism that has shaped American policy for 70 years because he worries that it's been much better for others than it has been for America. America has disproportionately shouldered the burdens. Others have disproportionately gained the benefits. So enough is enough, and there will be no more one-sided alliances. There are two possible versions of the Trump doctrine that's evolving. One goes something like this. America might help those who help themselves, but will be more likely to help those who help America. A kinder version might be, they're your values too, so don't expect us to be the only ones fighting for them. Now, President Obama spoke beautifully about American values, but was always cautious and sometimes slow to stand up for them. On his watch, the rules-based order was already unravelling. Trump is much more honest 
about the limits of American power. For all the former president's high-mindedness on fringe issues like climate change, Trump's America is more robust than Obama's. It's certainly less apologetic and still ready to use force. So at least for those allies that don't shirk their responsibilities, Trump's America should remain a reliable partner. Just don't expect too much. A new age is coming. The legions are going home. American values can be relied upon, but American help less so. This need not presage a darker time, like Rome's withdrawal from Britain, but more will be required of the world's other free countries. Will they step up? That's the test. For the threat of Islamism hasn't diminished. Iran is an Islamist state, albeit of the Shiite variety, trying to get nuclear weapons. Over the past 50 years, each manifestation of Islamist terrorism, from the PLO to Al-Qaeda to Daesh, has been worse than the one before. Hence, the eclipse of Daesh is almost certainly just the current calm before the next and worse storm. Until Islam is wholly purged of its death-to-the-infidel mindset, ramifying war and random violence are ever-present probabilities. Then there's Russia, that's clearly become a predatory state. Under Putin, Russia has invaded the Ukraine, meddled in Syria, coerced Georgia, had numerous domestic critics murdered and killed opponents of the regime abroad. Putin's Russia is the only big country in Europe in the last three quarters of a century to have waged aggressive war against its neighbours. For Australia, Putin will always have blood on his hands. Due to the Russian missile battery that shot down MH17, killing 38 Australians among 298 innocent travellers. Now, China is still an economic opportunity, but it's a big strategic competitor too. With the militarisation of the South China Sea, the bullying of the Philippines, Vietnam and even Japan, with probing against India and the ever-present danger to Taiwan, China is asserting itself all around the region. It is still a dictatorship of the proletariat, now with a president for life. Some of China's swagger is the natural heft of a very large country, reinvigorated by economic success. But China's goodwill often seems conditional on shunning the Dalai Lama, on ignoring the slow squeeze on Hong Kong, on abandoning Taiwan, and ultimately on choosing China over America. These are not choices that any free country should have to make in order to be China's friend. So far, the rise and rise of China has been good for the wider world, as well as for its own people. It's been powered in part by Australian coal, gas and iron ore, for which they've paid us well. High quality and inexpensive Chinese goods have also sustained our standard of living. For Australia, China is not only our biggest market, 
and an increasingly important foreign investor. In most years, it's our biggest source of foreign students, overseas visitors and even permanent migrants. There are now about a million Australians of Chinese background, close to 5% of our population, nearly all of them well integrated into the life of our country and thoroughly steeped in Australian values. May they never have to choose between their country and their ancestry. Australia won't gratuitously offend China, but mustn't be submissive either. Our companies and our universities should not change what they do at China's behest. Our foreign policy should not bend in China's favour. And so far, it mostly hasn't. Indeed, in changing the rules of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank to accommodate Australia's governance concerns, the reverse, in a small way, may even have been true. While keen to deepen the economic relationship through the free trade deal, Australia's first with a G20 country, and to engage culturally in the hope of finding more common ground, my government was always quite clear about the priority of our strategic partnership with America. You don't make new friends by losing old ones, was how I put it. When President Obama declared at West Point that America could not be the world's policeman on its own, I said, as Prime Minister, that America need never be alone and that while America would have more important and occasionally more useful allies, it would never have a more dependable one than Australia. As PM, I wanted to be a welcome change from those visitors to the White House seeking what America could do for them, instead offering what we could do for America. When the WikiLeaks spying scandal broke, there was nothing but strong public and even stronger private support from Australia. When Daesh stormed across eastern Syria and northern Iraq to the gates of Baghdad, Australian special forces, military trainers and strike fighters were there almost as quickly as American because America should never have to fight the world's fight solo. Being America's partner, as well as its friend, will be even more important now, given Trump's obsession with reciprocity. Indeed, it might be the only hope of keeping America engaged in troubles that aren't already its own. In my judgment, Australia should have upgraded its Iraq mission to advise, assist and accompany as soon as America did and extended it into Syria. Australia should have mounted freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. And Australia should not only have welcomed moving the US Embassy to Jerusalem, but shown solidarity with the United States and Israel, the only liberal democracy in the Middle East, by moving ours too. For the first extended period in Australia's settled existence, the strongest power in our part of the world is unlikely to share our values. The rise of China means that we can no longer take for granted a benign strategic environment. We can no longer be sure that someone else will be the first to respond to any challenge to peace, stability and decency in our region. The expedition to East Timor 
that Australia initiated and led is unlikely to be the last occasion when strategic leadership is required of us. And all this has seismic implications for Australian policy and for our armed forces. The Defence White Paper that my government commissioned said that Australia's armed forces should be able to successfully defend our country from any likely aggressor, intervene effectively in a regional conflict and contribute meaningfully to our allies' military operations around the globe. China's rapidly growing military strength, as well as the increasing capabilities of other regional countries, will inevitably make it much harder to do that than the White Paper anticipated. I fear that there will have to be a much greater focus on strategic deterrence, especially if a rogue state like North Korea has long-range nuclear weapons, and especially if the American nuclear shield becomes less reliable. For Australia, obtaining the capacity to shoot down incoming missiles could easily become a multi-billion dollar necessity. Almost certainly, our Navy will need routinely to be enlarged and strengthened. There will almost certainly have to be more of our planes rotating constantly through the Butterworth Air Base in Malaysia. Our ships and submarines might need to spend more time operating from Singapore if they are more readily to be where they could easily be needed. Inevitably, our capacity for cyber defence and cyber offence and our intelligence gathering will need constant upgrading. Our too intermittent relationship with India needs to intensify and its security dimension needs to develop. Especially while we still have much to offer, we should try to make ourselves even more useful to Indonesia. And none of this should mean any withdrawal from the Middle East, which is still the most immediate danger to the world's peace and stability. My government increased Australia's defence spending from a historic low of 1.6% to 2% of GDP. I made the commitment to a continuous build of major service ships and began the process of acquiring new submarines. To its credit, the Turnbull government has continued and developed this work but I fear that dramatically increased military spending in our region, up 60% in just the last decade, means that rather more now needs to be done. Can our ships be expected to operate, for instance, without the air cover that an overstretched America may no longer provide? Can we afford to wait at least 15 years before just the first of the next generation of submarines becomes operational? And does it really make sense to take a French nuclear submarine and redesign it for conventional power to be less potent than it currently is? <clears throat> My instinct is that acquiring a capacity to strike harder and further and the need to give our country and our armed forces greater protection could soon require military spending well beyond 2% of GDP. We need to work out what we reasonably require to keep Australia safe and pay for it, rather than ask what we can get for any particular quantum of spending. 
our armed forces need to be more capable of operating independently, even against a substantial adversary, because that is what a truly sovereign nation must be prepared to do. When America spends 3% plus of the world's biggest GDP on its armed forces and the rest of the Western world scarcely 2%, it's hard to dispute Trump's view that most of us have been keeping safe on the cheap. America can't be expected to fight harder for its Australian ally than we would be prepared to fight for ourselves or to do more for Australia than we are ready to do for ourselves. John Curtin's famous plea to America in the darkest days of World War II actually exposed our ingrained tendency to look to someone else for our own protection. When you think of it, what Trump is making clear to us and to others is what should always have been screamingly obvious, that our nation's safety now rests in our own hands far more than in anyone else's. So, Walter, thank you so much for the opportunity to address the Heritage Foundation. Congratulations on everything the Heritage Foundation has done to ensure that America is its best self. And let me assure you that while many thousands of miles across the Pacific, uh, I admire the work that you've done. Uh, and I still think that for all the current troubles, uh, to use Reagan's phrase, America is the last best hope for mankind. Not the only last best hope, but certainly uh, one of them along with Australia. Great. Thank you very much. We've got some time for some questions. Um, we're going to have a microphone. We have a microphone. Uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation. Right here, down in the center. Thank you for coming. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. My name is Mitsuo Nakaya Heritage Foundation. Um, Asia is in turmoil since Vietnam War. It's really... Uh, a sad situation here. My question is, uh, number one, what's your position on the uh, Korean Peninsula? Number two, uh, your position on South China Sea? Okay, well, on the Korean Peninsula, uh, it's a pretty straightforward position. Uh, North Korea is a rogue state. Uh, a rogue state threatening not just South Korea, but its neighbours and increasingly the wider world. Uh, and uh, the sooner North Korea can be reined in uh, and the sooner the world can be rid of uh, North Korean nuclear weapons, the better. Um, I think it's absolutely critical that the US commitment to South Korea is in no way weakened uh, and my fear is that just at the moment, the South Koreans might be feeling rather less uh, assured of American support uh, in the future than they have in the past. On the South China Sea, I can understand uh, China's growing military strength. Um, the stronger China's economy becomes, uh, the stronger we can expect China's armed forces to be. Uh, nevertheless, uh, 
I think that um, the claims to the disputed caves and reefs of the South China Sea are uh, uncertain, even flimsy, and uh, Australia's position has always been that there should be no unilateral alterations to the status quo. And obviously there's been nothing but unilateral alterations to the status quo over the last decade or so uh, at, uh, at China's instigation. So uh, I think that uh, if China wants to uh, develop its soft power uh, and build trust, um, it would uh, act somewhat differently uh, in places like the South China Sea. If China wants to be regarded um, with the same warmth that America has historically been regarded uh, um, to be helpful rather than assertive is probably the best way forward. I'm Sadhana Dhumi from the American Enterprise Institute, and thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for that. that was an excellent speech. Um, I'd like to turn this a little bit towards the debate that's been going on in Australia. Um, as you're well aware, there's been a debate there about whether Australia should remain as closely allied with the U.S. or whether, in the, given changing circumstances and the rise of China and the emergence of China as Australia's most important economic partner, uh, it should become, it, sh it should hedge its bet bets more. How do you think President Trump's record so far, as well as his statements, is going to play into that uh, debate going on at home for you in Australia? Well, my position uh, always was that you didn't gain new friends by losing old ones. And uh, my position with the Chinese government always was that we wanted the strongest possible relationship with China, consistent with our overriding strategic partnership with the United States. And uh, I've got to say, in my time, uh, because we were clear about our standards and our position, and because we were consistent about that position, I think we were able to uh, improve our relations uh, with China without in any way uh, downgrading or compromising our partnership, our intimate partnership with the United States. I think it's very important in dealing with all countries that you are clear about where you stand and you are consistent in acting in accordance with those fundamental principles. Um, look, uh, uh, I don't think that you should compromise your values for your interests, because I think in the end, your interests are best advanced by upholding your values. Uh, so I don't think it's a question of Australia distancing itself from the United States to accommodate new strategic realities. I think it is a, it is a case of Australia strengthening its relationship with the United States and other like-minded countries so that strategic realities will not move against us 
the way they have been for the last few years. Hi, uh, Philippe Mas, University of Rochester. Um, so I'm kind of fearful of this 2% um, target of GDP because it seems a bit superficial. It seems like a superficial measure of how much um, countries should spend. Um, are there more objective measures of how much of how we can spend the money more efficiently, um, defend, um, you know, our respective countries? Yep. Look, I think that's a fair point. Uh, to talk in terms of percentage of GDP is uh, is is pretty arbitrary, but nevertheless, a country that spends two percent of GDP on defence takes its own security more seriously, generally speaking, than a country that spends only one and a half percent. Uh, likewise, if you spent two and a half or three percent of GDP on defence, you would be making normally a bigger defence effort than if it was just two percent. But I did make the point in my speech that the real uh, task of uh, sensible government is to decide what your country needs to be capable of militarily and to spend what's needed to give you that capability rather than have an arbitrary figure. Uh, my instinct, given the darkening strategic environment, is that 2% won't be enough, uh, might not nearly be enough, uh, given the likelihood of having to develop um, uh, missile defence and the likelihood of having to have uh, a stronger and more capable navy uh, with perhaps a more robust uh, deterrent uh, and a more powerful submarine fleet. Hi, my name is Babs Ho, and I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. It seems like the large influx of Chinese um, students in Australia and citizens has been largely a good thing. Mm -hmm. But in the past, China has leveraged that power and threatened to maybe withdraw students from Australia. Um, how, do, how does Australia and other free countries proceed carefully um, while admitting those Chinese students, but also making sure that China doesn't have so much power that they can use that against Australia? Look, it's a, it's a very good question, and there is no cut-and-dried answer. Uh, it's a very good thing that uh, students from around the world, including China, uh, choose to come to Australia. It's a very good thing. It's good for Australia because uh, uh, they bring us uh, fees and uh, they also go back to their home countries with much better insights into the way a liberal pluralist democracy like Australia works. And normally they go back to their home countries with a great affection uh, for Australia. It increases Australia's soft power, if you like. Um, the Colombo Plan, which brought tens and tens of thousands of uh, the young leaders of Southeast Asia uh, to Australia from the 1950s to the 1980s, was probably the greatest ever exercise uh, in soft power by Australia. And uh, my government uh, tried to build on that with, if you like, a reverse Colombo plan whereby bright young Australians would go overseas to study at the top universities in Asia. It seemed to be a good way of returning the compliment uh, to, uh, to the countries of Asia. So, so look, I think uh, students coming to Australia is a good thing for us. It's a good thing for them. But obviously, if students come to Australia... If anyone comes to Australia, they're expected to act in accordance with our norms 
um, and uh, to study diligently, uh, uh, to uh, participate uh, uh, fully um, and peaceably in the life of our country while they're there. And uh, we would be absolutely appalled if anyone coming to Australia from another country felt coerced or bullied or directed uh, by anyone else. Uh, and uh, if there were any Chinese, Australia, Chinese students in Australia who felt that they were being bullied, um, they certainly should uh, tell us uh, and we would do our best uh, to protect them. The world has an American leadership, yeah. and, the, and the faith that Americans have in their own leadership, and that's something that you stressed six years ago. Um, how do you find that balance today? Do you, as you're traveling around the world, meeting with other leaders in Australia and in, in, in political circles, what's the feeling you get about faith in American leadership today? And, and when you're here, when you're dealing with Americans, how do you feel Americans today feel about their own leadership? Yeah. Well, it was pretty obvious to me even six years ago uh, that Americans' faith in leadership, if not necessarily their belief in their country, uh, was ebbing. No doubt about that. And the most recent presidential election uh, was an extraordinary demonstration of just how deep the gulf between voters and the political establishment had become. Um, Trump basically smashed up the Republican uh, establishment uh, to take the nomination and Bernie Sanders came very close to smashing up the Democratic uh, establishment to take, to take, come within a whisker of taking that nomination. And both Trump on one side and Sanders on the other side are manifestations of popular discontent uh, with the way things are and have been. Um, we don't have quite the same alienation from the political establishment in Australia because the middle class in our country hasn't been as economically squeezed for as long as I think the middle class in the United States has been. But there is absolutely, undoubtedly, uh, been a further erosion of, uh, of public trust in government. The challenge for an utterly unconventional president who speaks in terms that are forthright, to put it kindly, and often brutal, will be somehow to regain public trust despite the ferocity of the language that he uses. Uh, now, I hope it can happen because uh, the social fabric is incredibly important. Um, the sense of solidarity, uh, each for the other, uh, in countries like ours is vital. Um, you have got to think and believe that the guy at the top cares for you, is interested in you, and is doing his best to help you uh, even if you might disagree with the particular things that are being done, you've got to accept that there is a basic goodwill and benevolence there. 
and uh, America is deeply polarised. I was talking to a very, very substantial US business leader just the other day uh, who comes from a, a flyover part of America but lives and works in New York, and he said, uh, round here, not a single person likes and respects Trump. I go back home, and everyone likes and respects Trump, even if they find his ways of doing things at times over the top. So these are, are, are very, very challenging times uh, for the United States, and the United States' friends and allies uh, want America to succeed. I think uh, we know deep down, however prepared we are to admit it, that we have been free-riding and we do need to do more. Um, but I think we also hope that uh, there will be a little more respect shown uh, than always seems to be the case at the moment. Uh, thank you, Prime Minister, for a, a great uh, tour d'horizon. Uh, Gregory Copley from the International Strategic Studies Association. We see a new form of Chinese suzerainty, if you like, uh, new colonialism in Africa, the South Pacific, even the Caribbean. Uh, and yet we see also with the global uh, architecture changing, particularly with Brexit, uh, opportunities for uh, Australia and other countries to, to take steps. Do you foresee a, a revival possible uh, in the British Commonwealth, or well, in the Commonwealth, uh, to be part of that mechanism to uh, re-promote, if you like, uh, Western and Australian values and US values commensurately? Well, I think just at the moment the challenge for the British government is to successfully navigate Brexit, and at the moment they're making heavy weather of it, uh, which... I uh, so hope can swiftly and satisfactorily be resolved. Um, I mean, the problem has been that both sides of British politics are divided on Europe and trying to work out what a satisfactory post-Brexit arrangement should be has proven extremely difficult uh, as the resignations uh, from the May government yesterday demonstrate. Um, I have my own strong views about what could be uh, the elements of a successful Brexit and in a nutshell I think that uh, what Britain should be prepared to do unilaterally uh, is to allow goods from Europe to come in free of tariffs and quotas. Um, it uh, should uh, unilaterally uh, recognise European credentials and standards. Um, it should offer free movement of people for work, not welfare, at above a certain wage rate. Uh, so you're getting people who are boosting the economy uh, as opposed to taking local jobs. I think that um, that's the sort of thing that uh, Britain should do. Obviously, uh, Europeans currently resident in Britain uh, 
should have the right to remain and, uh, if they wish, become British citizens. Uh, so I think, and, 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 and if, if that was done unilaterally, um, whatever the Europeans did in return, uh, a devaluation of the pound uh, would more than compensate for any tariffs that the, that the Europeans imposed. Um, and if Britain were to take a, a highly entrepreneurial approach to the rest of the world, um, I think that we will soon find uh, uh, Britain flourishing mightily because when you look at the history, there's really been no country on earth that has been as successful as Britain over the centuries. Uh, British soft power is extraordinary. Uh, the modern world is a world made in English and all of that in the end is a tribute uh, to the extraordinary genius of the British people over uh, many, many centuries. So if there is one country that should not be scared, other than America, of standing on its own two feet, uh, it's, uh, it's the United Kingdom. And yet the British establishment has been so uh, enthralled to this European ideal that they're finding it very hard to let go emotionally of all of that. And yet Britain's destiny has always been to the wider world. Uh, that includes Europe, but it's not only Europe. Uh, and that's been part of the difficulty. So, uh, so look, um, I, I certainly would love to see uh, uh, um, I, uh, an ever stronger and ever deeper um, integration uh, amongst all the English-speaking countries, um, but that does, um, just in the short term, uh, mean Britain sorting out Brexit much better than seems to be the case at the moment. That leads to another question, mm. um, and, and it builds on a theme yeah. of your speech, maybe the, the principal theme. Um, what can we expect from Europe to mm. do in your part of the world? I mean, if, if there's, you know, they've got a lot of nearer-term problems mm. than the South China Sea or anything else, but mm. if there's a case of Europeans free-riding, to a certain extent that's going on with the security environment mm -hmm. in, in the Pacific. And um, it's not just that... The U.S. is re-examining some of its commitments, and that sort of mm. thing is why we need help. But the truth is, whoever were president, whatever mm. would be going on now, mm. the task is just so big mm. that we need more hands on deck. Absolutely. What can we expect of the Europeans, do you think? Well, uh, what, what I think we all should want to see is the Royal Navy back in Singapore. Um, I mean, that would be a, uh, a tremendous sign of the commitment of what is still the most powerful country in Europe uh, to a global to a global role, and uh, um, yeah, that's that's what I'd like to see. Let's uh, take uh, one more question. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. I thought your speech was very good. Uh, in the U.S., there are laws against foreigners interfering in U.S. elections. Does uh, Australia have a similar law? And uh, what, what laws would you like to see? And do you think by speaking here that you're interfering in a U.S. election? <laughs> uh, I think that uh, uh, friends should always value and respect each other's opinions, even if they don't always share them. 
and I think that countries that uh, wish to prosper uh, should welcome um, ideas, uh, even those that might be novel and challenging. Uh, one of the reasons why the English-speaking countries have flourished so mightily uh, over the centuries is that we have never been closed societies. We haven't been closed to outsiders. We haven't been closed to new ideas. And when we come across new ideas that we think make more sense than our old ideas, we embrace them. We change. So that should uh, that should always be the case. Now, um, uh, I think that um, a country like America uh, has... Uh, every right to put forward its point of view and uh, American citizens who come to a country like Australia should have every right uh, to express an opinion and what's right for America is plainly right for other countries uh, including China which might have rather different opinions and different values uh, to ours. I suppose uh, there's nothing wrong with trying to be influential. Uh, the problem is when people aren't just being influenced by ideas, aren't just being, uh, I suppose, uh, um, drawn by friendship, it's when they're being bought. Uh, that's, that's when a line has been crossed. Now, um, it's one thing to state a principle it's another thing to embody a principle in satisfactory law uh, because the law is a very blunt instrument. Uh, nuance is difficult uh, in legislation. Uh, we are attempting at the moment to uh, bring foreign interference laws into being, but um, there's quite a bit of controversy about just how far they should extend and just what should be covered. And uh, I don't think that we have yet come to a settled place. But I think the principle is very clear. Countries uh, and their citizens are entitled to a point of view, uh, are entitled to make their voice heard, are entitled to build friendships with uh, individuals and institutions in other countries uh, as long as they're not trying to buy them, uh, as long as they're not trying to subvert them. Um, and while... Uh, what's okay and what's not uh, can often have fuzzy boundaries. Nevertheless, we need to be pretty clear about the principle. That's a good distinction. I'm glad you asked that question. Mm. That's such a good answer. Um, I wish we had more time for more questions, but I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for such an encompassing speech. I think you've covered virtually everything we could in an hour here. So thank you very much. Thank you, Walter. Good Thanks time. so much. Thank you. Thank you.